and my good friend John Collier is with us here tonight. Uh, John is the definition of a good man. Uh, he has faced his darkness. He's been to the bottom, uh, spent some time in uh, prison, some time in solitary confinement, collectively a, a year of that, in addition to the uh, 10 years, a decade, cumulatively in prison. And so John is a man who uh, I was drawn to uh, about a half a decade ago. I think we met when I spoke at a men's retreat. Um, gosh, where was that? Recalibrate, I think. Yeah, that was down in Yankee Springs area. That's right. So we uh, met, and I had shown a Shawshank Redemption clip, and we wanted to, uh, to show that tonight, but for copyright issues, we, we didn't dare. But John is a man who uh, has kind of been to the bottom, and we have purposely uh, sought out stories that have been told throughout base camp, and John is certainly no stranger. He's spoken at many of our uh, base camps, as Dave McIntyre did last week, and so John's been a favor favorite of uh, many of the base camps that we have throughout Michigan and other states, and so we're grateful that he can come here and, and do this type of interview format. But I wanted to bring in John because John, uh, like Dave McIntyre, who spent 66 days uh, alone and won the Alone Show that we had uh, previewed two weeks ago, John also knows what it's like to sit for long periods of time in silence, and he knows what it's like to be put in quarantine, if you will. Uh, different vernacular in prison terms. It's more solitary confinement. And he knows what it's like to hear those voices in his head, feel like he's just teetering on the edge of madness and where uh, that madness mingles, there's also great mystery. And if you stay long enough in that space, it can actually lead to this sense of awe and marvel, if you will. And John uh, came out of his prison experience uh, a better man for it, had some dramatic uh, encounters, if you will. Uh, if you're attuned to the biblical narrative, there's a lot of people that had very powerful God moments in prison. In fact, I think the best writing, the best um, content, the best messages or the best sermons, if you will, the best stories often come from these deep, dark places. And so John is certainly an individual that um, has gone through that. So John has a long story, and I want him to unpack it for us. And I want to just set the stage. We're going to kind of jump into his story a couple of years ago. Um, he's riding a lawnmower, and this is about two or three years after you and I first made a connection, and then this incident kind of happened where you're just out doing your thing, you're mowing your lawn, and something is getting triggered inside of you that you were surprised by and thought had been dealt with, and so it snuck up on you in such a way that you're like, whoa, I thought this was taken care of, and it had a way of arresting you and kind of putting a pause on your story where uh, it was really a crisis moment. Um, how you had shared that. So why don't you unpack that a little bit? You're riding the lawnmower, what's going on inside of you? And then we'll go backwards to your childhood and through your prison experience and to currently what you're doing today. Sure. So I was, I was out mowing the lawn and this, this was just two to, well, actually it was about three years ago, I think. And there'd been a lot of things going on in my life at that time. And I had, you know, come out of therapy, uh, intense therapy for a couple of years mm -hmm. and uh, over over my trauma and, and my childhood trauma and as I was still coming out of that uh, trauma uh, and therapy alone um, those two things hand in hand uh, even when you walk through recovery it's it's a dangerous thing it's like walking through a minefield mm. because you have to look out for things that are going to unexpectedly go off and so uh, I was at a point in my life where I'd come out of therapy and I was pretty healthy, but I still had some challenges. And one day I was out mowing my lawn and some things were coming up in my life where I was going to be doing some more public speaking. And suddenly I found myself transported to 
a place and time in a kitchen um, when I was about seven years old. And uh, it was a it was a very traumatic situation. I was back in that that place. Uh, I was frozen in time, and it was a violent episode uh, with my father. And uh, it brought me to my knees. And in that moment, I cried out to God and said, "God, what are you trying to show me? I've already seen this." And I realized uh, God was trying to show me something I didn't know at the time what it was. Mm. And two weeks. This is really strange because, you know, I just prayed about that, and I knew God was trying to tell me something, but about two weeks went by, and God decided to show me again while I was mowing something, and then I had a, a vision again, and now I'm 12 years old, and I'm back in that bed where I can hear a vicious beating, mm-hmm. and I'm frozen again, and I know what's happening. But at the same time, I'm not that little boy again. I'm in that space with him. Right. This is a whole different thing for me now. So I come out of this, and I'm just crying out to God, God, what are you trying to show me? And through a series of events, I believe God was challenging me to face my fears. And I think I shared with you, Kevin, what I did was I began to revisit place one of those places of my trauma yeah I remember you're trying to get back to the actual house I and, was and to gain entry and you had talked with the uh, current owners and that wasn't uh, a possibility but you did spend time outside the house just trying to uh, invite the presence of Christ into that scenario into that scene and to see that um, Jesus was there the whole time he was, and, and that day he showed me when I, I went to that house, I I tried to get different folks to go with me. Uh, I think I even tried to get you to go. I think I tried to get my wife to go. And then in the end, I realized God wanted me to go on my own. Hmm. And when I thought I was going on my own, what I found was that he was the one going with me. Yeah. And when I was outside this house where some of the worst childhood things I'd ever witnessed, uh, been a part of, had taken place, I was standing outside that house and I was looking through that house like it was a glass house. And I could see that little boy in that kitchen. And in that moment in time, I heard what I believed to be the voice of God speaking to my heart saying, it can't hurt you anymore. Mm. And in that moment, I believe God revealed to me that when I was willing to trust him and go back with him, he would heal me and he would walk me through that door. Now let's pause here for a moment because this is this is a strong man um, here, a, a decorated state trooper on the governor's detail. You'll probably unpack that as part of your story as well. We're not talking about a, you know, a wimpy, weak man here. We're talking about a man who can handle and shoulder not only his own pain but the pain of others. Did very well in his career. Went through a prison experience that again is not for the weak or timid. A prison alone can devour a man and and uh, spit him out a, as a shell of what he once was or devour him whole. Um, but I think it's really careful to note at this point uh, how Christ took John backwards. And so a lot of people are like, does this sound like psychobabble? You know, you're getting in touch with your inner child, and where does that fit in? And, and so there's a real disconnect there. And so I often tell men that unless the boy is healed inside the male, the male can never become a man. And he stays in that pocket of, of immaturity and of um, just... Yeah, it's trauma, and it doesn't allow you to grow. And I think John used those words really well. His, a part of his life, a scene of his life, 
an episode of his life was frozen and uh, it wasn't uh, connected to his whole self. He couldn't access that. So there was a part of him that could become very uh, childlike very quickly uh, with certain triggers. And so I would like you to just paint this visual for you and then we'll jump back into John's story. What if it's kind of like this? So Jesus had a men's ministry um, and he started out with uh, people that were outside the system, if you will, fishermen, tax collectors, people that you wouldn't necessarily pick as your A-team. And he developed a men's ministry and they lived together, they broke bread together, they traveled together, they did ministry and life together for three years. Uh, as they're doing this, little children are trying to come into this circle of men, right? Uh, and the disciples are like, hey, wait, this is a, a ministry for men. What are these little children doing here? And Christ said, suffer not that the little children come to me because such is the kingdom of God, that we can't gain entrance to this kingdom except to become like a child. And so I would encourage you, whether you're a male, female, teenager, student, whatever your label is or whatever part of life um, journey you're on right now, think of it this way. Uh, maybe you're an adult right now who's keeping these younger parts of yourself from the person of Christ. And every time this little boy, like John's little boy, is trying to scurry in between the, the feet and the ankles and the knees of these adults, and we barricade these younger parts of ourselves from the living Christ, maybe what Jesus would be saying to some of you tonight is, you know, you need to let that little girl and that little boy get through. And you need to let uh, that younger part of yourself sit on the lap of Christ and play together because there's climbers will call it deep play. And I've, I've experienced it in some, to some degree on extreme expeditions. You get so deep into an expedition or into a moment, they actually have a word for it and it's called deep play. And it's where, uh, everything is at risk. You're literally on this precipice, um, of dangerous activity. But in that moment, it's actually, uh, it becomes play. And I think maybe what Christ wants to do for some of us during John's talk here is this idea of allowing these younger parts of yourself to play with the person of Christ, in the presence of Christ, and allow Christ to touch these younger parts of yourself, even as you're in an adult body, and to be okay with that. So John, that really struck me with your story, is this younger part of you that you thought was doing okay, all of a sudden you're right back there. Yeah, and it was it was something I wasn't expecting. It was uh, it was really unusual, but it was a, it, what happened was actually very healthy for me. Um, it was, and I it was really an opportunity for me to be not only tested, but for me to focus on the reality of where I was. Yeah, and also, you know, after that experience, and from that day, I walked away when you know God revealed to me in such a big way that the whole purpose of these visions and that's what I believe today is that ultimately the bottom line was, was I going to trust him? Mm. And that's what I did. And I, and I even called my therapist after this and I just said, Hey, I want to make sure I'm doing okay. And I shared with him what was going on. And he actually thought it was fantastic uh, that I took, I took the step to confront my fear. Yeah. And that's, that's that bold step that so many of us are afraid to do where we can't get to that. Maybe we can get to that threshold, but we're afraid to take that extra step. Hmm. What would you say to a person that um, feels like there's something really young inside of them that's broken and they just can't seem to get it fixed? Uh, I hate to use that word because we, we tend to think that Jesus is about fixing us and actually it's deeper than that. He wants fellowship with us. And as that fellowship happens, the fixing part just naturally happens, but it's not like we're in a, in a tool shop. Uh, it's more of this relational connection and as a, as a aftermath of that, or as an attribute and a, and a benefit of that, 
uh, healing happens, what would you say to someone that's just like, you know what, I'm an adult, but I really feel busted up. In fact, a lot of what's happening with this global pandemic is triggering some things that go back to my childhood. What would you say to those people? Well, I would say, first of all, what we need more than anything else is we all need each other. We need community. Yeah. And for somebody who's struggling with that, I would say the first thing is, you know, a safe place to find, to talk. Mm -hmm. And, and that means even if it's only one or two friends that you can share with, it's a, it's a start. It yeah. only takes two people to start. And so find a safe place to have those conversations and then build a small community, uh, stick with it. Um, don't, don't, uh, isolate, don't retreat, uh, come out of the dark. Yeah. Communicate, talk, talk about what you're feeling and share that with friends. And that's a good start. That's a good place to start. Yeah. You've mentioned a therapist a couple of times. How important was that for your healing process? Like, where would you be today if it wasn't for that particular element in your journey? Wow. I, uh, <laughs> I don't even want to think where I would be because, you know, God didn't show me till I, I was 58 years old that I had PTSD. Um, but I think that there are a lot of telltale signs in life. Um, for me, there are just because of all these various life experiences I've had. And of course, uh, any one of us who's ever been born on planet Earth, we've suffered some kind of trauma yeah. in some shape or form. And actually, I mean, on a, on a global scale right now, we're experiencing some kind of anxiety, some kind of maybe depression. Uh, we're hearing about suicides um, with not just for first responders and veterans, but with people in the workplace, especially our first responders, um, you know, even on the hospital front lines, too. And when it gets to build to be too much where we can't handle it anymore, we need a place to go to, uh, a place to retreat, to, uh, a refuge, a safe place. Mm -hmm. And with, within the confines of, of a group of people that you trust, uh, that's a great place to be. So therapy was a big part. And unfortunately, um, part of my background was, was being a professional minister, right? And so for decades, uh, I just didn't have a very good opinion of therapists. So typically the preacher is like, ah, you don't need therapists. They're just full of it. And then the therapists are like, ah, the preachers are just, and they, there's a total disrespect between those two communities. Now, fortunately, we have some great guys that are part of the Grace Explorations tribe, some of whom are actually pastors and therapists, which is a fantastic combination. But uh, we'd like to think that uh, we're all broken on our soul level on our spiritual level. And just like we go to a doctor for physical issues, there's no shame at all in going to a therapist and admitting that, Hey, you know what? I've got some soul shrapnel and this thing is getting infected and I need someone who's got steady hands that can extract this over time. I mean, your, your journey into therapy, this is not a quick visit. This isn't a one, two, three type thing. This is a long standing. I was in therapy for three years every week. Uh, and it was incredible because this guy every week would just pick more shrapnel out and he would let it surface. He'd ask questions that would trigger, uh, did some rapid eye movement. I mean, there was a variety of things that they did, but he was Christ centered throughout biblically based. And so ultimately he pointed me back to the ultimate healer, which is Christ. And I know that that's been a huge part of your journey. I can't imagine how anyone can find healing, uh, from trauma apart from Christ because, uh, PTSD or trauma is a wound that happens in the space-time continuum. And so to heal something that happens in time, you need something outside of time to heal that time wound. And Christ is transcendent of time. He was before time. He was during time. He'll be after time. 
And so uh, everything that we do at Grace Explorations, we love therapists, we love community. John's already talked about that. We also love counseling. Uh, we love church. We're very uh, pro-church. Uh, and we also are very pro-contemplation, which is what John had mentioned, that a lot of the healing that happened was just him and Christ together. Uh, there was no counselors. There was no therapists. There was no community. There was no uh, band of brothers. There was no church. It was just him and Christ. So all those four things have to happen in your life, four streams that we call uh, of healing is contemplation, counseling, uh, community, and church. And to the degree that you're involved in those four things is the, to the degree, quite frankly, uh, that you'll be healed. So John, um, I know we fast forward in your story. Take us back to uh, what it was like to grow up. And I want to dovetail into some of the stuff that you're talking about with our current issue of domestic abuse, which is happening. Uh, it, that's probably one of the saddest things that is happening with this pandemic is the amount of domestic abuse that has escalated. What was it like to uh, grow up in a house where you just never felt safe? What was that like? It was chaotic. Uh, you were never in one place long enough to really make friends or keep them very long. I, um, I, was, I was reflecting over the number of elementary schools I went to as a kid, and I believe the number was about eight. Wow. And that was um, right up till, you know, we left Grand Rapids area. And, you know, I don't know all the reasons for it. I suspect it was, uh, it had everything to do with my father. He was not a stable person. Um, he was not educated man. He'd come from the other side of the tracks. Uh, he had a lot of problems um, in lack of education and training. He was good with automobiles and he could fix things with his hands. He was mm. really good at that. But he was a, a controller and, and a manipulator. And, um, you know, I was basically the first child born, and that was out of wedlock. And my parents ran away to get married. So consequently, you know, both of them were just kids. Yeah. They didn't know how to be parents. And I don't know what it took to, uh, what it took to get to that point where, you know, my earliest memories of my father basically getting violent with us was about the age of three. Hmm. And so for five years of my really life. Really at the beginning of your memory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I have pictures in my mind, things I actually do remember. Um, I can safely visit those moments and memories in life to try to gain an understanding. Uh, it explains a lot to me nowadays, you know, um, in regards to things we talk about in therapy, you know, and fight or flight response and mm -hmm. things that trigger those types of uh, responses whether they're emotional or physiological based on maybe just something you smell or something in the room, who knows what it could be. But through that experience, uh, my mother, uh, I, she's a brave fighter. I really love her and she's watching tonight. Hi mom. Hmm. And, um, I give her a lot of credit because, uh, her faith I think is one of the things that kept her moving forward. Yeah. And, um, and so she was really protective of my sister and I. I just had a, a younger sister at that time. And so we basically fled after the divorce. And my mother raised us. And she moved us to Traverse City, Michigan. I lived up there as a kid for a few years. Um, actually got into junior high up there. My mother got remarried, and, um, and that consequently went bad. Um, this guy was a, a drinker, and when he drank, he got violent. And you're father for them, your biological dad is in and out of prison this whole time yeah which he he disappeared uh, from the map several times and uh he was in and out of prison three times during 
you know, all the way up till um, my career began as a state trooper. Wow. And for a protracted period. So there were times where dad was just completely out of the picture, your biological dad. Exactly. Yeah. And, and most of, you know, my, a lot of my experience with my dad was, um, you know, a lot of kids can remember going fishing with their dad the first time or, or doing something special with their dad for the first time. I don't have any of those, you know, memories with my own father. Mm. Um, I have the bad ones, um, but, you know, I don't have natural childhood memories yeah. of, you know, things I did with dad. Hang with John in this story, though, because there there is a good ending here. Mm -hmm. So we have to create some darkness, right? And then the light will come in. But please hang with us because this story will take a dramatic turn. But take us to the part of your story um, where you just drove up north, okay. <laughs> which also okay. planted a seed for your, you know, your career. Yeah, this was the beginning of my dream to become a state trooper. So, so at the age of 12, my mother, um, she separated from her second husband. She moved back to Grand Rapids. She brought me and my sister with her. And uh, at that time, uh, I can only describe the state that I was in was uh, fear and mistrust. And I felt unsafe even with my mom in this situation. And, you know, here I'd lived through this with my own father for years and then it came up again um, with her second husband and even though we had moved away I still did not feel safe so I decided to run away and in the middle of the night I grabbed my mom's keys and some cash out of her purse and I rolled that old car down the driveway and uh, I was just barely old enough uh, to, and how old are you I was <laughs> I was 12 years old 12 years old okay so. <laughs> don't do this at home kids I don't recommend this. 12 and years old, and you drove from? From Grand Rapids to Traverse City. Wow. And uh, I parked behind a car, uh, or not behind a car, but behind a church, and uh, fell asleep in the car and woke up to a knock on the window the next morning, and it was a Traverse City police officer. Wow. And um, that's, that's how that started. And you just felt uh, there was a connection there. You're like, okay, this is a good man in my life, and he's come to rescue me. You're a 12 year old boy at this point, and it just made an indelible mark on your life where you're like, you know what, maybe that's somebody I want to be. Yeah, I didn't feel like a felon on the run at that time, even though uh, <laughs> I guess legally I was a car thief at that time. Yeah. But um, that police officer that day, actually, he cared about me, and, and I never had a man care about me. Wow. And I spent a lot of time with him that day, and it, it impacted me in a major way. So you go through your teenage years. Um, have probably no clue as to some of these traumatic elements that are just kind of festering underneath. Oftentimes a man in his twenties and thirties is just out to check the boxes. You know, he wants to be a success. Uh, maybe doesn't have a good working idea of what significance looks like, but he wants to make his mark. It's the warrior phase of a man's maturations part, uh, process or journey pilgrimage. Um, and so you're checking boxes, man, you're getting out of high school and where do you go from there? Yeah. So, uh, let me just jump in here with a quick story before we get to that, because I actually ended up in foster care uh, through my high school years in Lowell, Michigan. Had a great teacher there, uh, a great friend who was a foster parent to me mm. and his wife. And I, it was through those years that I excelled and I began to build the dream of I wanted to be a state trooper. And so that was my life's ambition. And when I got out of high school, I went straight to Grand Valley Univer uh, State University. I studied criminal justice, got my degree in criminal justice. I got a job in the court system a few years in. He played football too there. So <laughs> John, John has uh, allowed me to be I'm on I'm a this Laker side. for life, so yeah. yeah. John can get you good tickets, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Your, your uh, social media is gonna blow up. Now. Okay. 
And uh, so I went to Grand Valley State, and uh, I actually got into criminal justice. Uh, this was a, a dream for me. And uh, I will tell you that over these years, I had various um, uh, contact at, at different times in my life with my own natural father. Uh, he would kind of pop in and out, and he was never a steady presence in my life. And my mother became a steady presence in my life during mm -hmm. my high school years. And, and that relationship was rebuilt, but... But uh, my goal was to become a state trooper. And so, you know, three years into college, uh, two to three years in, I got a job working for the Kent County Juvenile Court right here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, ended up working there with kids who I had, you know, I could see those faces. A lot of them looked like mine when I was that age. And so that was a good thing for me to be a part of. But I still had this dream, and I was going to become a state trooper, and I got the call. Uh, Michigan wasn't hiring, so I went to Indiana. Hmm. Was there anything in you uh, as you're working with juveniles um, that, because I've heard a lot of people um, when they get involved in a certain type of ministry or an outreach or just something that's doing good, they feel like uh, when they rescue that person, whoever that person is, that they're almost rescuing themselves. They don't even realize that what's really going on. But did you feel like in some ways on a really deep level, maybe uh, actually subconscious that in some ways you're like, you know, what, if I can help that kid, maybe I can actually help me at the same time there's some type of mirroring effect that goes on with that did you ever feel that at all like wow I can connect with these kids and maybe if I help them maybe I'll get better or I'll feel better well I don't think I ever looked at it that way but I, I had a natural I just kind of drifted to them naturally yeah um, I think that was just because of maybe shared experiences or dysfunctional backgrounds, who knows. But that became more of a reality, actually, when I become a police officer in my career. So now you're an Indiana state trooper. Mm -hmm. And tell us about what that whole chapter in your life, because you, you did very well. I mean, you climbed the ranks. And uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and maybe why you, and there's a key phrase in there, and I think you'll know what I'm talking about, of, of a man or one of your superiors saying, John is a, Self-made man. Self-made man. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about what was uh, the engine under the hood. What was driving you to succeed? And when you would put bad guys away, what was some of the motive or the energy behind that? Well, it wasn't originally. I'd never thought of it this way. But, you know, years after, I kind of looked back and I realized that I think I was on a mission to lock up every bad guy that I thought represented my father. Mm. And that was a mission that I was going to stay on until the end of time. And so my first couple of years, my rookie, my second year, my third year as a trooper, um, I was kind of blowing the numbers away and making arrests, not just, uh, you know, misdemeanor arrests, but a lot of felony arrests, major arrests, too. And I had received some commendations at press conferences and things like that. I got some attention, and uh, before I knew it, the governor at that time was Bob Orr. His home was there in Evansville. And uh, I had been assigned to his detail. Wow. I mean, you're at the top of your game. It doesn't yeah. get any bigger than that. I mean, that's phenomenal. All the while, there's stuff that you're not even aware of that's percolating. And it's just waiting for the right trigger, the right moment to explode, uh, which is the nature of trauma. It's like you can put these feelings down and you can bury them, but they become zombies. And they don't die. And they pop up out of the grave at the worst times uh, all it takes is a little trigger, a certain uh, incident or a smell or a sound. That's the nature of trauma as it just sleeps. It goes into this dormancy, if you will. 
and uh, but it doesn't die. It moves into this zombie-like state, and it just takes the right moment to trigger that. So everything's going really well. You're at the top of your game. Um, wow, governor's detail. I mean, that's you know the cream of the crop. I mean, there's a lot of guys that probably would have loved to have been a part of that. Uh, you're looking really good on paper. You're getting commendations, uh, awards. Uh, peel back a little bit. What's what's going on and what triggered, uh, what's another pivotal point in this story that will help some people identify with maybe some things in their story? Right. Well, I got to a point where I was in about five years, close to five years, maybe a little less, and I wanted to transfer north to be close to my family, so I put in to transfer uh, to South Bend, Indiana. And uh, so I moved away from Evansville and uh, reassigned there and started working there. The first year it went great. And then um, and then I got a call one day from somebody I hadn't seen in a long time who just got out of prison. And it was my father. Mm. Random, out of the blue. Yeah, from what I remember, it was just kind of random. I heard from him. And, um, you know, I always tried to stay in touch with my dad, even though he never called me. But he called me out of the blue and he got out of prison. And we talked, and he wanted to come see me. And so he came to Indiana to see me, his son, the state trooper, the ex, and the ex-con getting out of prison to come see his his son. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that I really believed all my life was missing was hearing those words of affirmation from my father. Mm. I'm really proud of you. You've got what it takes to be a man. Yeah. And... Um, and it seemed like my whole life was on that precipice with my father because I never got that. And he came to be with me that weekend. I, I took him out on the road with me. We just did a few minor things, you know, nothing major, didn't chase any bad guys. Um, I think I made a traffic stop or two and I took him back that day and he was with me for the weekend. We didn't talk a whole lot, although my father was a joker and he used that as a way to cover up his emotions. But he did say to me that week and he, he said to me how proud of me he was. Wow. The thing that you've wanted to hear your whole life that would have validated you. Exactly. Which is, uh, and if it's not there, it's the deepest man a wound can really carry is if a father never says those words. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I love you. You have what it takes. I'm proud of you. You know, not profound. But if, if those words are never heard, and we know men that are like this that have spent their whole life going to extraordinary lengths just to hear those words from their father. So this massive wound, and you would think in that moment that, wow, now things are just going to get better because those words are finally uttered. But what happened uh, as a result? Uh, unfortunately for me, I knew that my father, his whole lifetime up to that point, his pattern was he was a liar and he used people. Mm. and he would manipulate and he would say anything to get what he wanted and I think when he said it that day and when he left I still saw him as a liar wow even though what he said was was true I mean as a, as a father looking from his perspective my gosh you know you turn out to be the son everybody wants yeah so it it actually had a reverse effect on you Maybe unpack what, what's going on now that, now that you've heard these words you've longed to hear and it's churning up stuff inside of you that you didn't even know perhaps existed. Yeah, and following that experience with him that weekend, um, I, you know, I don't remember how, you know, if it was weeks or days, how long it, before uh, things just kind of just started to unravel, but um, I just began to uh, isolate a little bit 
and you know, I'd have a beer after work once in a while or whatever, but now I'd begin to go home and have a lot of beers. Hmm. And, um, and, and then looking forward to the job because the job to me was all that ever mattered. And, uh, so I started to get into this pattern of drinking a lot and then, um, and then I just drank more and more and then I, and then I started using drugs and I mean, it, it just, it just spiraled out of control. Wow. And, and the thing is that I know emotionally, I can look back to those days and I know that I was in emotional physiological turmoil and I didn't have anybody to talk to. And, and I, and what does that mean? I didn't have anybody to talk to. It means I could have talked to somebody, but I didn't feel safe to have somebody to talk to. Right. And so where did I go? I didn't go anywhere. Just and stuffed I, it. And I just stuffed it. Yeah. And when it gets to a point where it gets so high and your elevator is so high and you can't dial it back anymore and there's no way to go, things are not going to be good. Right. And it goes sideways. Go, it goes sideways. Yeah. And that's what it did with me. And so now I'm, I'm drinking all the time and I'm, I'm, drinking and drugging when I'm not on the job and then and it escalates into some really stupid petty theft uh, some really dumb stuff uh, where I got myself in trouble and actually got suspended Hmm. and then you know I just continued on this downhill roller coaster because they brought charges against me I ended up resigning under pressure I came back to Michigan totally confused um, angry which, you know, anger is a, a huge secondary emotion. Absolutely. And especially uh, for men when they're hurt exactly. and they can't find healing. Anger is usually the resident emotion. And part of me was thought, thought, you know, I'd gone mad, of course. And, you know, you speaking questioning, was I ever a good guy in the place? First place, you know, was wow. I just, just rotten to the core and I never realized it until now. Or you, you go through all these scenarios and crazy questions in your head and then you just don't care anymore. And by the time you're so buried in drugs and alcohol or whatever it is, you've just lost track of everything. And so his words matter. really created an identity crisis mm-hmm. in you. Uh, is, is my dad just saying this to manipulate something? Is it a control thing? What's going on here? And it triggered something in you where it, it became uh, a massive um, identity crisis of who am I? Yeah. And when I came back to Michigan, basically I, you know, I took some of the skills I'd learned as, as a trooper and, and, uh, I began doing burglaries too. Mm. And so now I'm just kind of digging, I'm really digging a grave for myself uh, because eventually I got arrested and, and it got really bad after that, especially with, you know, psychological examinations. Um, Everybody thinking I'm crazy, including me. Yeah. And, you know, then going through the course system on the other side of the bars now. Uh, talk a little bit about the chase, because that is a, a climactic point in your story where you're you're running for your life, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I had tried to... They, they re-dramatize it on CBN. So <laughs> 700 Club had this. Joyce Myers followed your story, and that became a part of her ministry for several years, but... That's a huge, uh, just trying to figure out what's going on in your mind as well as the people who are chasing you and then finding out who you actually are. Yeah. Well, I was burglarizing a tavern and uh, I was actually up in Traverse City area, Grand Traverse area. And it was right on the border of Leelanau County. And I had actually been involved in a safe breaking ring for about three months. Hmm. And I had a partner at that time and we were just knocking off safes. And um, I had no, no purpose in life just to just to do that and drug drinking drug you know yeah and um 
one night I uh, broke into a building, uh, hit the safe, popped it open. Police showed up just patrolling the building uh, by coincidence, and there was a long chase that it, that ensued, uh, began to snow, involved three agencies, uh, Leland Hall, Grand Traverse, uh, Michigan State Police, mm. and they caught up with me that night, finally, after about a half hour, 40 minute chase, and um, they brought me back into custody, I wouldn't say a word to them, they ran my prints, they came back um, later, and they were all puzzled, and everybody was wondering, what happened to this guy? Yeah, highly decorated trooper, he's one of us, what happened? Because this story is, is going sideways really quick. Well, a lot of people turned on me at that point, um, especially in law enforcement, and they treated me uh, very poorly, and I felt like I deserved it at the time. Um, I remember being uh, addressed by a court officer when they brought me in uh, jail, and then they put me in isolation right away. But I remember him telling me uh, what a piece of trash I was and how I deserved to go to prison for the rest of my life, and mm. I believed every word he said at that time. So you're in a tough spot now uh, when a, a law enforcement officer ends up in prison. Um, nobody likes you. Mm -hmm. The guards detest you. The prisoners detest you. You're having, uh, I don't, I can't remember this part of your story, but didn't you even have some interaction or you noticed or they noticed you, people that you would actually put away? As soon as I walked in the door. <laughs> That's right there. Yeah. So your life is flashing in front of you and you know, apart from a miracle, this is not going to end well. No, I was, uh, as soon as I got recognized, I know I'd be marked. So, um, yeah, they got, I, I didn't even get halfway through the cell block. But I remember what that feeling was like, too. Yeah. Um, for anybody, um, I went to the old Jackson prison, uh, which was the largest walled prison in the world, still is, as far as I know, 14-foot-high walls and gun towers. And uh, the biggest thing I remember about that place is literally walking into that place feeling like I had walked into the gates of hell. Yeah. Okay, so this story has gotten really deep and really dark. You're at the base. I mean, you are in the belly of the whale. You're in the prison. You're in the cave. Uh, your story has, you know, started kind of flatline, if you will, um, and then it's escalating. You're hitting the top of your game, and then this descent is dramatic. This is a dramatic uh, parable that's unfolding before us. You don't have retrospect at that point because you're living it, so you're wondering what in the world's going on. But take us into the bowels of the prison and uh, when that first light shone of that man who came and how that story uh, developed with, I think it was a chaplain who uh, was very instrumental in, in sharing Christ. Uh, so bring us into that. What is it like in the bowels of that prison at your darkest moment? You're alone in solitary confinement, and then somebody comes into your life unforeseen that uh, almost appears angelic because it's just something that you couldn't have planned or participated in. It just happened. Yeah, this is an interesting story because this is uh, before I actually got transported to prison. So I, I, I wasn't a person of faith, um, you know, when I went into jail, of course. I sure was when I came out. Thank God for that. But but when I was in the system in isolation, uh, I was actually planning my suicide. And I found out details later on. Uh, this particular chaplain, he knew of me, but he did not know me. And he had actually left for the night, he and his wife. And I was told by his wife later this story that he just stopped and said, we need to go back. Wow. And, um, and he was talking about me. Hmm. And he came back, and that night uh, he came to my cell 
I saw I saw him carrying his Bible. And, you know, I half thought he was just going to start preaching or yelling at me, telling me I needed Jesus or I was going to go to hell or something like that. But he was the first person in that place that just came up to ask me if I was okay. He, he embraces cared. your humanity. He cared about me. Yeah. And yeah. he didn't even, he knew nothing of me, but he cared about me for no reason. Mm. And that was the one thing that stopped me at that time. It brought me back just enough from not jumping off. A glimmer of hope. Yeah. Yeah. A shaft of life and a shaft of light in a very dark place. So unpack a little bit of that because that's a real critical turning point in your story of this man that was God sent, really. Yeah, he was. You know, I'd had some seeds planted in my life in my teen years by my mom, bless her heart. She she got radically saved and prayed for me for a lot of years to know God and it talked to me about God. But I, I was not a person of faith. You know, I had gone to church, but that doesn't make you a person of faith. And, um, and so I didn't know Jesus. I didn't have a relationship with him. But that man that night, he was Jesus to me that night. Mm. And I saw something in him that drew me to him. And it kept me alive long enough to want to talk to him again and again and again and again. Wow. And through those conversations, my hope began to grow because something inside me told me that God was real, that there really was a son of God who came to die for me. Yeah. And that he could give me a new life and a new identity, not the one I had built for myself um, from those childhood years, but but an identity to know him and to know who I was because of him. Mm. And that changed my life. And that began to be the glimmer of hope for me going through the prison system because I will tell you that when you're in isolation, especially in the prison system, and imagine a massive cell block, and I was on top six, and some of you guys out there, you've been in the system, you know what I'm talking about. Um, it's a dark place up there. You don't see daylight depending on where you are. You don't get out very much. You might get out for a shower once a week, maybe twice if you're lucky. You don't see the daylight very much. Mm. And you grow accustomed to that isolation. But for me, that actually that, that prison cell, that isolation became a place where I met Christ. Wow. In your darkest place. Yes. You met the brightest light. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, he was my life raft every day. Hmm. Every day. What happens to this man? Um, that has a dramatic turn in your story as well, I think. Which man? The chaplain. Oh, the chaplain. Yeah. Okay, chaplain. Um, well, he actually became my mentor. Mm. And through the years, this is awesome, because uh, Bob Hall from Traverse City, Michigan at that time, um, he'd been in ministry for many, many years. He was, he was at the time, I think, with Forgotten Man Ministries, but... We had a relationship over the years, and he began to mentor me. And him and his wife came to visit me in prisons all over the state, wow. even, even when I was sent to the UP. And so they be he became a spiritual father to me. And he really helped teach me um, so much about Christ and, and understanding the Gospels. And, and he was just an inspiration to me. He, he gave me, he's the one who really gave me hope, him and his wife, Jamie. And dear people and they were always a part of my life and uh even to the day you know that i married my wife Lori, um they were there to do the honors wow and that was fantastic wow um so 
you're meeting an incredible uh, man who's basically becoming Christ. He's becoming Christ-like, mm-hmm. and he's meeting you in your darkest place. Uh, you go through this prison experience, which f- for many, it devours them whole, and they come out embittered, and uh, they commit the same crimes over and over again. But you've got a dramatic uh, change in your life. Now uh, take us to where the interaction goes with your father from this point. Um, maybe talk about the moment where you're waving goodbye or you're seeing him as oh, yeah. you're going into your sentence and then take us to post-prison and what happens between you and your dad at that point. Yeah. For, uh, for years, I had not seen my dad. Uh, matter of fact, when I was being sent off to prison uh, from the jailhouse uh, in a van, I was shackled. Yeah, I remember seeing him standing on the corner. And I could see him out the back of the van. He was just staring at the van. And he knew I was in there. Mm. But he had this look on his face, this just forlorn look. And so I went away to prison, you know, and I was gone almost 10 years. And he never visited me. He didn't write to me. He didn't call me. Um, I didn't know if he's alive or dead. But So I never saw my dad. But, you know, God dramatically changed me and, and remade my heart and remolded me into something just fantastically new, this whole new man. And he was the new hope that I had to even live, the mm. new purpose I had. And, and grabbing hold of that uh, in the year 2000 is uh, when I, my wife and Lori and I got married. And I ran into someone, my father, who I had not seen for 10 years. And I saw him at an auto repair shop. I have a uh, I have a stepbrother who runs that shop, and my dad liked cars, and he always come around the shop. And I was there one day to get the car, and I saw my own father, and I had not seen him in so many years. And I ran over and grabbed him and started hugging him and hmm. handshaking him and and uh, telling him, uh, "Hey, Dad, it's me. It's your son, John. Uh, I've got this beautiful wife. Uh, I met Jesus." It's fantastic. Um, he was speechless for the first time in his life. He didn't know what to say. And I always tell people when I get to, t- to give a, a talk on this that it's, uh, t- for me, it's 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. And, and I really believe the man that, that my father saw that day was not the man he saw riding away in that van that mm. day many years before. It was a different picture. Almost like Joseph and his brothers. They're like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's their brother, but they don't notice, you know? Yeah. It was very similar, wow. and uh, it was just—it was amazing to see that for the first time in my life, my own father didn't recognize me. Mm. The transformation in your life was so profound that it's—you were a new creature in Christ. You were a new person. I was. Yeah. But that—that that was the beginning of a new relationship I began to have with him and to pray for him, <clears throat> even though he didn't want those prayers at that time. Mm. And uh, I began to pray for my father and tell him, "Dad, I'm going to pray for you." And he was the guy who always joked because that was his way of hiding, you know. And uh, I would see him subsequently once in a while. And how you doing, Dad? Still praying for you. And oh, I'm doing great, you know. I don't need those prayers, but I appreciate it. And but I got a call eventually uh, from my sister one day, and um, after a year or two, and my father was starting to have some issues, health right. issues, and he started to experience some dementia. And, uh, and at that point, he had to go in a nursing home. And so uh, my sister and my oldest half, uh, stepbrother, they basically had to make that decision. For my father, going to a nursing home was like going back to the joint. 
Um, that was a crazy experience because he literally got tossed out of several nursing homes. I don't know how that can happen, but apparently he tried to pick fights and said some very bad things to people. Uh, he carried the four-letter dictionary around with him at uh -huh. that time. And there came a point where he finally settled down into a place, and God had been uh, really working on my heart and just in different ways. And there came a time where uh, during this period where I really felt God calling my heart to go to my father. And, and this was really a point in my life, too, where I had just had a major breakthrough where God really revealed to me the identity of a father was through him, not my, my, not my natural father. That's a powerful point. And, and that was huge. Yeah. And that was what propelled me to know that he was, he was um, sending me as his ambassador mm. to see my own dad. And so I went to see my own dad, and this was a powerful story for me because I'll never forget that day as long as I live. When I went to this nursing home, uh, I gave him his name, I went to his door, and I stood at the door um, hoping and praying that he would recognize me, and he did, and he called me by name, and he said, John, I've been thinking about you. And I said, Dad, I've been thinking about you too. And I went over and sat down next to him, and I grabbed his hand, and I said, Dad, God sent me to see you today to tell you you're going to die. I said, if I die today, Dad, I know where I'm going. And if you die today, I want you to know where you're going. And for the first time in my life, I prayed with my dad. Mm. And it wasn't a con job. It wasn't, it wasn't a show. It was a real deal. And I just held my dad, and we cried together that day. And for the next 14 months of his life, um, I went back to that nursing home every week with my Bible. I'd prayed over him. I'd, I'd read to him. Um, he got baptized in wow. his, his last days. And I saw the face of God show up in a man I thought who was not savable. Mm. I, I didn't think he had a chance. What was that like, the baptism? That was a pretty powerful scene. Yeah, I remember that. We, um, we organized that within a week period, and I went to my brother's church. And I remember carrying my dad, um, he was pretty frail and weak, and he didn't even weigh 100 pounds. I had to carry him into the baptismal tank. And I remember carrying him up the stairs and, and holding him up as he stood in the water. And then the pastor prayed, and, and he went down in the water. My father came up, and his, just, his face was, <laughs> it was, it was awesome. It was just like white as snow is all I could see. And, and he, said, he said, I feel so different, you know. I said, Dad, you're a new man. Wow. And now you're connecting the dots of your dad. He did the best he could with what he had. He did. And you could see that he was a broken man and that he probably grew up in, in various forms of abuse. And so he was only able to give you what he had, which wasn't a lot. It um, wasn't. And then God started filling up his love bucket, if you will. And, um, and then some things, he could say some things to you because we can only give what we first received. So if you meet a person who's embittered or angry or hurts a lot of people, it's like the whole phrase that's been quoted uh, a lot, hurt people, hurt people, heal people, heal people. And now you're experiencing some of the benefit of seeing God touch your dad to the extent where, um, yeah, in a, in a incredible way, you're both actually brothers because you share the same father. And so you're both heading towards the same peak if you will you're climbing the same mountain you're in the same family and there's some beautiful things that can happen there so take us to the end of of um your story with your dad at least your dad's earthly mm -hmm. uh existence and then i want to talk real briefly about what you're doing now and we're going to show a video of a guy that's been impacted by what god is doing through your life but just take us into that final moment of what that was like 
uh, between you and your dad because that's really the powerful point of your story is this whole father and son dynamic, which is ancient. I mean, when you look back to the beginning, before time, it was the father and the son, right? Mm-hmm. There always was this relationship. Yeah. The um, the last few weeks of my father's life were probably um, were probably some of the most meaningful. Uh, I remember Father's Day going to visit him, and he was very frail. And uh, they had a, they actually had an antique car show that side that day outside, and and he loved antique cars. So I got there, and a couple of the aides they put him in a wheelchair, and I wheeled him out, and. Uh, he enjoyed it you know he loved seeing those old cars but he was really weak at that time and so weak that by the time I brought him in and and they put him back in the bed I mean he could barely keep his head up but I remember sitting next to his bed that day and seeing how much this this man I thought was an animal when I was a kid and changed into this completely different person and even his even his um even his language changed. His, his four-letter dictionary got thrown out because he had nothing but good things to say to people mm. and to other people. And he became compassionate and loving and gracious in ways that I never witnessed before. And so I witnessed the true transformation of a man who I could sit at his bed before he took his last breath and I could tell him, and, and I could mean it, and say to him that, Dad, I'm so so proud to be your son. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. Um, we want to show you a video here uh, real quick. Our uh, producer is uh, is Corbin in the room still. <laughs> Not sure where he went. Hopefully he didn't fall asleep here. But um, we want to show a video here. But just talk about maybe a little bit about what you're doing right now, and we'll put a screen or a slide up here real quick of... Uh, of what you're doing right now in, in ministry. And then we'll show this uh, video here of, uh, oh, he's back. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, talk a little bit about this and then we'll go to the video with Dennis James. Okay. So um, I do have a ministry called Father's Love Ministry. And uh, if you go to our ministry, flministry.net, or if you go to Reboot Recovery, you can find out um, about Reboot Recovery Program. Now this is, uh, we partnered with them uh, last year. And uh, we, we ran our first group last year with some first responders, and we just had a, um, I'm really happy to say we had 100% graduation rate. Wow. Um, I found out about Re- Reboot Recovery um, just in the last couple of years through my own journey and really having a strong desire to want to see other first responders not go through the kind of hell I went through. Right. Um, but also see that, you know, there's, it was an opportunity for me to, uh, maybe God could use me to give back in some way. So, so we saw reboot recovery as a really great thing. Um, the founders of that are uh, Evan and, and Jenny Owens, and um, they put together this incredible curriculum. There, um, uh, all I can say is it's a great thing to be a part of. And I want to encourage people too because all of us are going through. We're, we're all going through this pandemic, right? So we're all going through some kind of. Uh, peril in our life, some kind of strife or some kind of stress or trauma. And if you go to rebootrecovery.com, they actually have a free, uh, it's called a crisis uh, edition. They have a free crisis edition uh, on trauma right now. It's a five-part series. So if you want to get a small group or something, it's a great opportunity to get some people together. And you can do a Zoom meeting. 
and do the course for five weeks. Walk through this, um, and, and it's a great opportunity that's to, awesome. to get some free healing. Yeah, and some that's resources. It's appropriate for the time that we live in, and that's the beauty of it. Is uh, you don't have to be a combat vet to experience trauma. I was under that pretense or that idea for a long time until some special ops guys on a mountain in uh, eastern Turkey told me, "No, it's that's kind of." something a lot of people experience mm-hmm. uh talk real briefly about father's love ministry and what you do there and then um while he's uh, going to be talking about that uh and while we go to a video right after that i want you to think about some questions that you want to ask john we're getting into that phase now of the story where it's q a so please put those in the comment column and we'll be sure to uh, answer those as best we can but uh, talk a little bit about uh maybe your book yeah and um you know what you do with father father's love ministry there it is. <laughs> so uh, my book is Inside Out of Father's Love. Uh, the book actually was birthed out of my story. And as a result of that, we started Father's Love Ministries. And uh, Father's Love Ministries has really blossomed into being, uh, for me, it's been an anchor to be uh, associated with a lot of different men's ministries. Um, we also um, have been involved in jail ministry as well mm-hmm. in different facets. Um but I enjoy the opportunity to go and speak like you have as well and to also just network with a lot of different people um, in ministries too where we can be a help. And so joining Reboot Recovery was a great thing for us. Um, and this testimony you're going to hear is awesome. Yeah. Um, and so we're really happy that you know God can give us any kind of opportunity to uh, give back to our community. That's great. Let's go to this video of Dennis James uh, just reflecting on what he does and how Uh, the ministries that John is a part of has impacted his life. My name is Dennis James. I've been a police officer, firefighter, and medical first responder for a little over 20 years. And partway through that journey, I met John Collier. Uh, I had met John several times. We had had several conversations. And we both sat in on a, a base camp Uh, put on by Grace Explorations, where a speaker talked about PTSD. Uh, The speaker was called out by some other people some years earlier uh, for his PTSD. After the speaker was done, John called me out about my PTSD. What John didn't realize at the time was that throughout the speaker's presentation, I was questioning whether or not I have PTSD. He didn't know and the speaker didn't know that earlier that day, I had done CPR on a woman for about 20 minutes and she didn't survive. That's part of my trauma that frankly, I'm still trying to deal with. But I'm not alone. And because of things like base camp and Reboot Recovery, which assists military veterans and first responders with dealing with their trauma. My wife and I have been able to work through a lot of the trauma that I brought to our relationship and frankly made our relationship stronger now because of groups like these. I would encourage everyone out there to find a group like this for themselves, for their spouses. Everyone that has ever experienced trauma, whether it's hidden by anger or, or however that's identified, 
will get stronger and get through this as long as they have the support of others. I thank John and I thank his wife for introducing us to, to Reboot Recovery. And I appreciate everything that Kevin and Grace Explorations has been doing for me and my wife. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, great man. And we appreciate all those that are first line uh, responders, especially uh, with our current crisis. So if you know someone that's in uh, that field, they have to see things and do things that we uh, don't have to see. And uh, just, you know, make sure that you appreciate them. And we certainly do. And we're glad that Dennis is a part of our, our tribe. So um, before we go to Q&A here, let's also uh, talk a little bit about uh, next two weeks. So uh, Clayton Curvino is uh, another good friend of Grace Explorations. He's spoken at several other base camps as well, has an incredibly dramatic story uh, in that he was on uh, Mount Everest in 2015. There was a, a huge earthquake, if you remember. Uh, thousands of people were uh, killed in the villages there in Nepal, and there were some 20-odd people that were also killed at Everest Base Camp, which he was actually going towards, and then the ground shook, and the horizon, the sun was blotted out by a massive white tsunami of rocks and ice and uh, everything that had collapsed within the Kumbu Icefall. So a very dramatic story. He's a man from down under, so you'll appreciate his Australian accent. So we're glad that he's going to be with us here on May the 17th. Uh, and then again, if you can give, for those of you that tuned in late, uh, we just are very grateful for a couple of individuals who have made this program possible. Uh, we are a partner-supported ministry, and we're a nonprofit, so everything you give is tax-deductible. But if you can just go to graceexplorations.com, it's on your screen, and just click on the Donate button. Uh, we'd love for everybody to be a, a part of what's happening. We typically have a jar at a base camp in a brewery, but we're now coming to you live stream. So if you can just reimagine what that would look like and uh, just treat the glass jar, if you will, as an online donation, we would certainly appreciate that. And we also welcome, of course, uh, monthly partners. We have about 30 or 40 people that keep this ministry going in all of its various uh, forms. We do base camps. We have story retreats now. And we're broadening our base to include uh, women in base camp and now families and couples and um, teenagers, I'm finding out, uh, here on live stream. So it's a great and growing ministry. We're glad that you uh, tuned in tonight. Uh, I want to leave you with this idea or this thought, and then if we have any Q&A, we'll go to that, or I can come up with uh, another question for John as well. But uh, Tozer is a great uh, guy to quote, and he lived a couple decades ago and wrote some incredible things. And this is one thing that just jumped out at me. I saw this on social media this week, but I think this will keep us sane in this insane moment. Uh, and it's simply this. When I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. So when we look at John's story and we look at any story, uh, whether it appears to us to be dramatic or mundane, all of the elements of our story, the adversity, the prosperity, the success, the significance, the failures, the wins, the laments and the losses, uh, all of those things, whether they're good or bad, and I think God sees things differently than we do because we are quick to label things as evil, and I think he looks at them much more like a scalpel in the hand of a good surgeon. Um, all those things on the bottom line, at the end of the day, it's to make you more Christ-like. Uh, some of you I know are going through very difficult times right now on a number of different levels. Um, I would just encourage you to allow God to do what he needs to do in your family, in your marriage, and more specifically with you. Because there's a lot of things that we can't change in our culture right now. They're happening so fast and so chaotically that it's difficult to remain centered 
But if you can focus on, on this quote, which I think is foundational to sanity in our own life, uh, and just wrap your heart and your mind around this idea that everything that's happening to you is meant to make you more Christ-like, you will stay sane in a world that apparently has gone mad in many ways. So uh, John's story has remained centered because he focused on what Christ was doing in his life, and he kept that as, as something that was a light on a hill, if you will, that guided him throughout some very dark places. Um, and if you're hurting tonight, uh, feel free to write something in the comment column. Maybe somebody can reach out to you or go to our uh, resource page at graceexplorations.com and click on Find Healing. We have several soul surgeons that are mentioned there or come to a story retreat when we reboot those. Uh, or join our Zoom group that we had talked about uh, earlier. But um, don't do it alone. Uh, John spent a lot of time fighting his, his past alone. You have to let people into your story. If it means getting involved with a therapist, please do. If it means getting involved in a community, please do. If it means contemplation, if it means church, actually, ideally, it should be all four of those things. Uh, please do that uh, to the extent that you do all those four things. Uh, to the extent that you're going to be made whole. And as you're made whole, you can actually start helping people and being a part of the healing process because you're no longer wounding people because you are now at a place where you're, you're well. Um, and that's what we uh, want to see happen with Grace Exploration. So I don't know if we have any questions um, here online, or if not, I can come up with some. Um, I appreciate you joining us. Oh, you know what? Maybe you could put in the comment column for those of you who are still here. We'd be curious to see who the first time visitors are. We usually do that at base camp and I forgot to do that in the live stream. But if you're here for the very first time and you're like, wow, I just kind of plugged into this, we'd love to hear back from you. Any questions or comments that you might have, um, that would be fantastic. So John, do you have any, um, closing comments or anything that you'd like to, to share? Yeah, I do. I have one comment. Um, I, and this is good because, um, I was reviewing uh, some of the Reboot Recovery material, and especially in the Crisis Edition. And, uh, and Evan Owens, Evan, if you're listening, this is something you said that I found very powerful. And it is that if you don't deal with trauma, trauma will deal with you. Mm, it's true. And I think that's something we need to think about because we can only push it down for so long because when it gets to the very top, you can't push it down anymore. And so... The best way to do it is get involved. Yeah, absolutely. So here's a question. Uh, what scriptures helped you remain grounded during your time in prison? Well, you know, the first one I ever memorized was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. And that was um, probably very profound for me because I was the one who was always used to trusting no one but John. Mm. And so for the first time in my life, I had to turn it over to someone else. And so that was a powerful reminder of me of where I was always going to put my trust. Interesting. Well, we're about 820 right now. So I want to just close with this idea, uh, this image. And I appreciate so much of you that tuned in on a gorgeous Sunday night uh, here in Michigan. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia is a great uh, allegorical tale that C.S. Lewis wrote, who himself was probably working through his own trauma, uh, a World War I vet like his colleague Tolkien, uh, orphaned like his colleague Tolkien, 
and they developed these mythologies, these secondary universes that in many ways I think became emblematic of what our journey through trauma looks like. And in particular with C.S. Lewis, he developed this uh, incredible place called Narnia. And in this place of Narnia, it was always winter, never spring. And there was a white witch, if you will, and everything she touched with her wand became frozen. Uh, and nothing could unfreeze these prisoners, if you will, unless this character, Aslan, came, who uh, came in the form of a, of a lion. And I think what Lewis was trying to articulate through symbols and through a fantastical story was this idea that it's always winter, never spring, until you hear the roar of the king. And there's something about the voice of Christ uh, from eternity into time from uh, through a rock in your own tomb there's something about the voice of Christ that can resurrect the dead back to life and I would just love to speak to those of you that feel like you're frozen in your story right now uh, you feel disconnected from your story you feel like uh, a part of your life a part of, of your story is just frozen and it's a frame inside your movie and you can't access that scene Ultimately, the words of Christ, the roar of the king has to come back into your story to make that never-ending winter something that looks like spring. We experienced a little bit of that here in Michigan today. People were flocking outside because the trees are budding and the flowers are blooming, especially the tulips, and the grass is now green again and the birds can be heard. Just imagine that as a, as a, uh, a landscape of your own interior geography, of your own interior soul, and just imagine what it would look like for winter's spell, for the curse of some virus to finally be broken, and now all of a sudden you can hear the bubbling brook and you can hear the birds singing and you can see green colors and vibrant colors coming to life in what was once a black and white frozen world. Uh, I'd like to just pray that that can happen. I don't have any supernatural powers to do that, neither does John, but we are connected to the person of Christ who death has no uh, strength over. There's nothing that comes against Christ that cannot be defeated by him, including death. So let's just pray together in these closing moments and ask Christ as the king, as the lion king, if you will, to come into our interior worlds. Lord Jesus, uh, we are so privileged to be called followers of Christ. Uh, we admit to you that there are parts of our story that don't make sense. There's a lot of what's happening in the world right now that doesn't make sense at all. Um, and it feels frozen. And it feels like we can't access what's really going on. And we don't know who to trust. And we're swayed this way and we're swayed that way. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come to us like Aslan did in Arnia. And we would hear the roar of the king. That you would be on the move again. That you're nobleness, uh, that your dangerous good would be seen again, that you would come into our life and you would show your face to be both fear, both fierce and fair. And you would come and you would breathe life into those dead places that are inside all of our hearts, Lord, that need to be resurrected again. I pray that for each and every one of us, that in that quiet space where it's just us and Christ, that you would speak words of life, just like you did to Lazarus, in the tomb, who had no faith, including anyone else that was in that story. And it was the faith of Jesus Christ that raised Lazarus from the dead. And so we pray that for our nation, we pray that for our society, we pray that you will heal our land, we pray that this virus will run its course and will leave. Um, but we often know that it won't leave until it teaches us what we need to know. And so, Father, we just pray that um, you would come 
through the gift of your son and for those who have never experienced the love of Christ that John has shared, who have never come to that place where like his father and like he did, uh, confess their sins. Um, you can do that tonight or whenever you're watching this episode and you can just get on your knees and you can just simply pray, God, I'm a sinner and I am so grateful that you sent your son to die for my sins so that when I die, he can invite me to you as his father, as my father, because we know that there's only one way to God and that's through Jesus Christ. So if you're here uh, tonight or whenever you're listening to this episode and you don't know Christ and the world is filled with chaos and you feel like your story is frozen, just invite him to come into your life, invite him to come into your heart, invite him to speak to you and maybe ask him this question, which is a daring question, but it's a great question. What do you think about me? Going back to that video that we saw at the very beginning, that a good man is a man who knows what God says about him is true. And what God knows of you is that you are a beloved daughter, you're a beloved son in whom he is well pleased and wants to have that relationship with you. Thank you for joining us here tonight, John. Thank you for coming. This has been a beautiful time Thanks, together. Man. I appreciate those of you that came on this glorious night. And uh, for the thousands of you that watched this episode after our live taping, thank you. And please share this wherever you can. This is a great story. It's very emblematic of how God relates to us as his own children. It's a father and son story. It's a story of trauma and healing. There's so many uh, facets of this story that can apply to our own story. So don't give up hope and uh, recognize that at the end of the day, God's ultimate objective is to make you more like his son. Thank you. We'll see you at our next episode on May the 17th with Clayton Curvino here at 7 p.m.